0: Well, can you picture this scene? Someone screaming, crying, maybe kicking, fists balled up, tears rolling down, cheeks, maybe some no, 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 some shouting, some yelling. Do you know the scene I'm talking about? It's the toddler tantrum. Right? Have you seen this? I'm sure you have. Even if you don't have your own toddlers, I'm sure you've been at Disneyland, the happiest place on earth, and seen this occur. Or maybe you're in the grocery store, or maybe it's in your own home. But the toddler tantrum is amazing. right? It's an amazing display of anger, frustration. And there's something that happens to our sweet little babies when they become toddlers, it's like a switch flips, and all of a sudden, that tantrum is the automatic response to not getting what they want, right? I want the blue cup, but you gave me water in a red cup. Tantrum, right? That's the automatic response. I want a cookie, but you want me to eat vegetables. Tantrum. I don't want to go to bed tantrum, right? It's just something happens when, you know, I'm not getting what I want, and so my automatic response is this wild display. Well, toddlers are hard to train as parents because it's just wild. It's just out of control, and it seems like something doesn't go their way. It just occurs, and it's hard to teach them to go against that automatic response. Toddlers don't often do the right thing. They don't do it automatically like we'd like them to. But you know what, you and I, we also don't automatically please the Lord when we become Christians. When we become Christians, we're given the spirit, we're given a new heart, but we don't automatically know what it is to follow God, and we don't automatically do the things that are pleasing to God. But our passage this morning will show us what it looks like for us to live a life that pleases our God. If you haven't already turned to 1 Thessalonians chapter two, do that. And I will just give you a little bit of the context where we'll recall that Paul is writing to the new Christians in Thessalonica. He had been there and shared the gospel and then had been run out of town. And so he is writing We're gonna look at two letters, right, over the course of this time, two letters back to them. And that's after he'd heard from Timothy how things were going. Timothy came and gave him a good report. And so he writes these letters to encourage them and to exhort them, to teach them what it looks like to follow God. So let's read this passage, follow along with me. It says this in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Well, the first section of these verses, Paul's clear concern and affection shows through. As we look at the first few verses of this text, we're gonna see that Paul willingly spent what he had for the people there. And so we're gonna look at our own lives and see that we need to do the same thing. So let's write this down for point number one. Expend yourself for other people. Expend yourself for other people. Expend has the idea of financial undertones and it's the idea of completely using up or completely giving it all away, spending. And it makes me think of if someone walked up and gave me a $100 bills and I, I was holding it. If I were to expend, if I were to completely use it up, I would give it all away, would I not, right? I wouldn't keep $1 or 50 cents or 20 bucks or 10, I would completely use it up, give it away. And that's the picture here. We see Paul in verse seven say that he was gentle among them like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And really, I cannot think of any other picture of expending than a mom with an infant. Can you think about that? A mother with her baby gives up Everything right, completely uses herself up. I mean, there's no on and off hours. Is there when you're nursing a baby? It's 2 a.m., it's 3 a.m., it's whenever. You give up hot showers, hot food. You give up time alone. Sometimes you're just walking around bouncing that baby forever, burp. I mean, there's so much that that mother of a newborn expends, gives. And even in our modern day vernacular, we hear a mom at the end of the night, maybe you've said this, I'm spent, I'm done, I've used it all up. And that's what Paul says that he does here. For the Thessalonians, he comes to them and he completely gives his very self, like a mother nursing her own child in that sort of way. Well, he continues to describe this in verse eight. It says, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. And it's neat to see the commentators say, this is the most affectionate language of all of Paul's writing. This section here with all the different phrases he uses affection, the gentleness, the nursing mother, the care. I mean, Paul is saying he was so desirous of them. He longed to be with them. He cared for them with tender concern that he was willing to share his own self, everything about him with these people. But there's also a phrase in there which says, we were ready to share And when we look into the Greek in that phrase there, the concept here is more literally we were determined. So we see on one side, Paul had tender affection for them, but also that he was determined to do this. He made a choice to put their needs above his own, to give of himself, to be spent. Well, if we continue on in verse nine, there's even more of this picture of expending that Paul gives us. It says, for you remember brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And it wasn't common for someone like a philosopher, someone sharing knowledge, you know, those Greek philosophers to ever take a menial job. To do hard, like labor throughout their days, that was that was considered beneath them, and so Paul, while he's sharing the gospel, he comes into this town and he doesn't say, "Pay me for this gospel ministry." Although we know he could, because we see in First Corinthians 9:14, it says, "Those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel." So that would have been fine, but. Rather than him being a burden to them, he took a job. He worked night and day. He maybe worked with leather, tent makers, we've heard, but he physically labored, sweat, toiled for them so that he wasn't a burden, so that he could share the gospel with them and not require anything from them, just giving. He didn't want to be a burden to these people because he loved them and wanted to give as a picture of Christ, as a picture of what it means and what it looks like to follow Christ. And this really seems like a tall order, does it not? I mean, when I look at this picture, I think, wow, this is a lot, totally spent, completely giving everything. That's a high standard for the way we love people. But if you're a mother in this room, you might already be doing this for the people in your own household. I can remember when I was a kid, there was a time of my life when my mom had to go back to work and she had three kids to take care of. At the same time, she was in college, finishing up a degree. She served in the church and we, she needed to go back to waitressing. And I remember from my perspective as a kid, I mean, when she would leave at night after she had done our homework with us, Made dinner, set out our clothes, got the back, I mean, think about all the things. Then she put on her clothes and headed out the door to waitress. And I remember thinking, this is really an inconvenience to me. You know, I don't want you to leave. I don't want you to go, stay, you know, be with me. And it wasn't until I was older and looking back, I just realized how completely spending she was of herself, right? She She would get back at 11 p.m., start the next day with all she needed to do, but she was glad to be spent for her family. She joyfully did that because she knew that's what our family needed. And even nowadays, I know, maybe you know, the same thing, you could call your mom and she would drop what she's doing at any time to spend herself for you. And this makes me think of Pastor Mike saying that you hear regularly, Go the extra mile, spend the extra dollar, and stay the extra hour for someone you love. Expend yourself for other people. I'm not saying we love our kids less, but I am saying we love people more. The people in this room, the people in our families, the people at our workplaces, the people on our neighborhood streets. We wanna be people who, like Paul, give of themselves for the benefit of others. So I have a few application points real quick for you. Maybe you've thought of your own, but one I think here, pray for greater love for people. I mean, I'm so motivated by Paul's love and affection for the people, and that love drove him to give. I want a greater love for people. We also need to keep our eyes open it is easy to be in a tunnel with your head down, doing your thing, doing the next thing. And so we need to keep our eyes open. There are many opportunities if we look up and look around and listen to people of needs that we can meet and ways that we can help. And the third thing is just a practical item. Leave space on your calendar to meet needs. I remember there is a point in my life where If something came up, there was not even a space, not even a minute that I could squeeze in. I had packed the day so tight that if there was a need, I I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it that day, I couldn't do it the next day because I was so packed in. And so we need to make sure there is space. Sometimes maybe we need to drop something from the calendar that day. That would be a way to expend ourselves for others. But before I move on, I wanna also give just two warnings here. Two things that will make this point difficult for you. And you might have thought of sin. And that's what I'm talking about here. But I I want to point out two areas specifically. One is the sin of jealousy. We need to look out for this. Because if we're wanting to expend ourselves, like we're called to do for other people, if we are jealous and envious of others' blessings and successes, the things that they have that we don't, we're not gonna willingly give ourselves for others if, if we're jealous of them. And so this is a sin we need to really look out for in our own hearts. Make sure we deal with it. Because when we can deal with that, we can give more generously to others. And the second thing is selfishness or self-focus. And oh, 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 this world that we live in, it, it does not tell you that this is a sin. It tells you to look out for you Pay attention to you, get what you need. Where's your time? What are your dreams? What are your desires? I mean, even down to the t-shirts in Target for my children, they say phrases that talk about, think about you, right? Make sure you take care of yourself all the way. And I am not saying we never take care of ourselves. or we never rest, of course, the Bible says we need to take care of ourselves, but we need to make sure we're not so selfish and Blindfolded to the needs of others when we're just looking inward at what we want or what we're not getting or what we should have. Well, the apostles, they clearly lived in a way that gave up what they have, that paid out what they had for the benefit of the Thessalonians, but they also lived in a way as to be an example to the people there of how to live a life pleasing to God, how to live a holy and righteous and blameless life, one that is worth following. And so we're gonna look at the next section as we write down point number two, which says, live a life worthy of following, if we wanna please, God, we need to make sure that our lives are ones worth following. Paul says in verse 10, you are witnesses and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. Paul is saying here he had integrity when he was amongst the people. He calls two witnesses to the stand, right? One, he calls the people of the Thessalonians, the Thessalonian people, right? He says, you saw, you saw our words, our actions. You saw how we lived. You know we lived this way. But he also calls an even greater witness. He says, and God also, God also knows the way we lived when we were among you. We lived holy and righteous and blameless. And when you hear the word holy, you may think of the, uh, the more common translation that we think of set apart, but this is better translated how people conformed to the rules of the God that they served. So this term here was more about whatever God you chose to serve, how did you follow that God's laws? So piously might be a better definition for us to think of, which does set it apart from the word righteous. How did you follow God's laws? How did you live righteously and do the right thing? And so these words together show us that Paul's conduct was vertically correct and horizontally correct. We think of his vertical relationship with God and the way he lived, he followed God's laws. He was right with God. And horizontally, we can think of man's laws and his relationships with the people there. Both, he lived correctly, he had the right choices. And then that third term, blameless, has in another aspect of not a person could cast blame on him. Nobody could point something out in his life and say, I can blame you for this area. His reputation was one of godliness. Paul lived like Christ among them, right? He lived the way Jesus lived and he was able to say like he does in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse one, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. And I think this description raises our standard because it is easy for us to lessen the standard of holiness in our life because it's easy to look around at the people around us and compare with what they're doing, with their choices and to feel like we're pretty good, we're pretty godly. I mean just the other day I was driving into school to drop off my kids and I witnessed a mother screaming at her children and grabbed one by the ear and physically yanked him over. And I it's very easy in that moment to think I've never done that. I'm pretty godly, pretty righteous, you know? But that's when we look around at the people and compare this way. When really we need to see these three descriptions and raise our standard of holiness to Christ's standard, to living a life like Christ. Not be easy on ourselves, Many of us do this. Many of us make changes to our behaviors when other people are watching, right? If we're in public, it's like a kind of a, oh, I better respond correctly here. Or maybe even if our kids are there watching, we might stop what we're about to say to our husbands and say it later, because we know we're being watched. But Paul, by calling God as a witness, really opens the door to all areas of our life, public and private. Because God is a witness to both. And I know that no one is perfect, right? But God requires perfection. That is exactly why all of us, every single one of us need Jesus. Because in Christ, God has made us perfect. It's crazy, but it's true. And he calls us to live like it. He calls us to have that standard of perfection, We see that, we have that desire if if we are Christians because even when we fail, we want to live. We, We turn, we desire to do the right thing next. And I think that can be a confusing truth and if it is for you today, talk to your leader about that. Because when we fail, we seek yet to turn, right? To confess and to repent and to move on in our pursuit of holiness, in our living a life that pleases God. Well, verse 10, I think, does give us some applications, and maybe you've been picking up on this as you are writing, but one, I think we can set a godly standard for our life. Has your standard for yourself, have you lowered it? Have you just been okay with just getting a little bit better in certain areas, just cleaning up a few things? Because we need to raise that standard of a holy, righteous, blameless life like Paul lived, like Christ lived. We also don't want to allow excuses for sin in our lives. Right, just a personality thing. It's just kind of how I I am or just a tired thing. (laughs) I'm just gonna worn out, that's why I sinned. Or was my boss, you don't know my boss. I mean, I can't help but just respond in that way. Because when we make excuses for our sin in our lives, that doesn't help us to grow in our holiness. Instead, it shifts the blame away from our own areas that we need to work on to other people. And when we deal with our sin, We grow in our holiness. And thirdly, we want to make sure that we fight that sin well. Not only making excuses and shifting the blame away, but making sure we have a plan to deal with the sin. To deal with it right when it pops up. It makes me think of, uh, we just recently bought a house that is a cosmetic fixer-upper, which is the nice phrase for ugly, right? Lots to do, and um, it's been a blessing to us. My dad's a contractor, so he's out there doing stuff, and it's been great, but one of the areas of major concern was our backyard. The people, they were in their 90s. So I I don't know if they even went out in the backyard because when you open the doors to the backyard, weeds were everywhere. You know, it was hard to tell what were weeds and what were like a bush or what is that? It was just ugly. And I remember looking out one time and I said to my husband, I go, is that a weed or is that a tree? There were weeds that were eight feet tall in our yard. I mean, you could stand under them and get shade from them. They were like tree weeds, right? And they were so obviously ugly and we needed to deal with them. And I think for us, we need to look at sin in the same way. We need to see our sin as a weed that's there, that we need to deal with. And we don't wanna leave it just to grow a little more to get uglier, to get worse, but rather as soon as we see a little weed pop up, we deal with it. I mean, it's not easy to deal with sin, I'm not saying that, but when it is left alone and pushed aside, it becomes a tree weed of sin in our lives and it is much harder for us to deal with it. And so we need to deal right when we see sin. When we deal with sin, we're gonna grow to please God more and to live a holy and righteous and blameless life like Paul did amongst the Thessalonians. But then lastly, we see another way for us to live this pleasing life is the same way that Paul lived as a spiritual father to the Thessalonians. we're gonna look at our last section of verses here. It says that Paul was a father to them. And this helped them to make greater strides in pleasing God. So let's write this down for point number three. You and I, we need to willingly accept correction. Ooh, willingly accept correction. Verse 11 says, For you know how, Like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul uses another metaphor, another family metaphor of a father and in ancient times, the father was the one tasked with the responsibility to provide moral instruction to the children. So he was the one that needed to see what needed to be done, correct what needed to be fixed, to provide correction, to provide direction as we say, to make sure that his children were growing in the right way, respect, responsibility, obedience, all of those things that fell to the father. And Paul said that he was like a father to them. The father must point out the shortcomings in his children in order for them to grow and to change. Well, we know Paul privately instructed each one of them, he says, and he also publicly instructed them. And he gives us these three terms of encouragement, exhortation, and charging, imploring, insisting. And so I want to look at these three a little bit. The first one exhort, exhorted you is the idea of urging someone to do the right conduct, to do the right thing. And I, this makes me think of if someone came up to me and linked arms with me and said, let's go over there and meet that new visitor, come on. It's like, that's urging me, but okay, okay, let's go. You know, I'm, I'm being helped along to do the right thing. We're linking arms, we're going together. That second term, encouraged, it's more warm even than that. It's more of the praise, more of the consolation, the comforting, more of the someone coming along and saying just warm words of encouragement, you did a great job in this, you're doing so well, press on, you've got this. Well, I think the first two are pretty easy for us to handle, right? If someone says, come on, do this with me or gives us encouraging words, that spurs us on to live holy lives. But the third one, the third one is what I want to focus in on. Charged, implored, insisted, and even required. Required correction. It's not as warm, it's more direct. And you and I as followers of Christ, we need to accept this type of correction in our lives. I'm a new tennis player, not been playing for very long. And let me tell you the correction I've received because I was basically handed a racket and I stood on the court and that's what I knew. I knew how to get the ball. I mean, I knew the point, get the ball over, right? Other than that, I didn't even know how the counting went or anything. So you can imagine the correction upon correction upon correction I've received. And I've had a few different coach type people give me some pointers and it made me look into coaches and successful coaches in history. And I read an article about some of the best coaches with the most successful individuals and most successful teams. And here are a couple of the... Quotes from this article, one said, criticism and encouragement have to be alternated and used at the right time and in the right situation. Both are needed. Another said, you have to be honest with people, brutally honest. You have to tell them the truth about their performance face to face. And the list went on. Every coach talked about the need for specific direct correction. If that person wanted to be better in their sport, they needed to hear, agree, and do. And for us in the Christian life, as we're living to please God, we need to be able to hear and be open to the correction that we receive from the people around us and from the Word. And so I have three categories of places we can receive correction. The first one is the word of God itself. You and I need to be open to correction from God's word. Even if we feel differently or been taught differently or think differently, when we come to the Bible, we need to be open to being corrected by the truth that we see in the Bible. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Bible will sting, will provide that conviction of where we need to change, where we don't measure up, and we need to be open to that sort of correction. Secondly, and this really does go along with it, but the preaching of the word, You and I, we need to be open to correction from the preaching of God's word when the Bible is explained. When we have it unpacked for us and we are convicted, we can pray, God, please show me. What do I need to change? We can come into each sermon, each message we hear with that desire to be corrected. And the third category, I would say probably the most difficult category would be godly people. We need to be open to correction from godly people. The word willing, as we see in this point, willingly accept correction means ready and eager, prepared to do something about it. That adds an extra layer when we talk about correction because that means we're open to it. We're ready to change as a result of the correction that we receive Just as Paul was placed in the Thessalonians' life to give them correction, to direct them what to do. We have spiritual leaders and mentors and people who are watching our lives, discipling us, pastors, that we need to be open to their correction. But beyond that, Galatians 6.1 says this, if anyone is caught in any transgression, if any person is caught in sin, You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And that really does open the door to not just a small group leader or a pastor, but to godly people that we're walking alongside for them to be able to point out something in our lives that they see that doesn't measure up to God's standard. Have you ever told someone in your life, you have an open door to correct me? You have an open door. When you see something, please point it out. I want to know because I want to grow. And I realize that even if the moment will not feel good, and so far for me, it never has. I've never really liked that moment, that feeling. But I know when I step back and I really think about it, I truly desire to live a life that pleases God. And so if someone sees something, tell me. I want to change, I want to grow as a result of this correction. I need to step back and think through what that person is saying, right? See their perspective, pray about it. Really think longer than maybe that moment, that feeling of what? that defensiveness. And so I think we need to be open and even inviting to the people in our lives, those godly people we're running alongside to give us correction. My oldest, Alyssa, she's eight. My youngest is two. He's the one doing the tantrums, no. Um, It's really cool because she's been growing and, and I do think she loves God and wants to please Him and we have great conversations about it, it's awesome. But it's been neat to see in her maturity how she has received correction from us. Oh, when she was younger, you know, the correction, she wasn't always received well. Sometimes she'd get correction because of the correction. I mean, I'd correct her and then her response would give more correction, you know what I'm saying? Now that she's getting older, she has this saying that she keeps saying, which I just love, it just gives me joy. She listens to my correction and she goes, good point, mom. I'm like, yeah. Woohoo! You know, it's like, yes! She's she's listening, she's like, yeah, you're right, I shouldn't have done that. You're right, I needed more self-control. You're right, that wasn't the right response. I mean, good point, mom. What a joy that gives me in hearing that she's listening, she's willing to be corrected. Where we contrast that with our youngest, who is at a stage where he needs a ton of correction, being two and yet he never wants to be corrected. He's never like, thanks mom, good point, you know, (laughs) right? And I I want us to be in a place where we say, oh, good point, I see what you're saying. I'm open to think about that. I'm not gonna be angry in response. I'm not gonna break fellowship with you because you brought something up. I'm not gonna gossip about it. I'm not gonna just, you know, be angry and out of here. I'm gonna instead be open to seeing your point of view and willing to accept maybe a change I need to make. At least prayerfully consider it, work with that person. And it helps when we remember that our goal here is for us to walk in a manner worthy of God as we see in verse 12. If we want to live a life that pleases God, then this is our focus. And so even correction, which doesn't feel good often, it's going to help us to do this better in a way that pleases God. Well, if you're a Christian, then it matters what you do as part of God's family. And I think Paul gives us a beautiful picture of what it looks like to be a mother, a nursing mother who is willing to expend what we have for the good and benefit of others. Paul also was an example of a godly man who lived righteously, holy, blameless, who was vertically correct and horizontally correct. And that too needs to be our goal and our desire as we fight our sin and move ahead in our holiness. And then we also just see that Paul was able to speak into the Thessalonians' life. I mean, he wrote these letters back that had correction in them so that they could grow to be more like Christ and to please him and to walk worthy of God. Let's do that in our lives as we seek to live pleasing to him. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this passage and I thank you for all the aspects that we see in Paul's example and how we should live. God, I thank you for the conviction you bring as we look into your word, as we desire to live lives that are holy and pleasing to you. Help us, Lord, to take that conviction, to take the things that you bring to mind and to work on them, to get help, to get accountability to fight those sins so that we may be pleasing to you and that we may say to others, follow me because I follow Christ. God, I pray for great discussions today and that you would be honored. We pray this in your son's name, amen. Well, you're dismissed to your groups.